Amen. You guys may be seated. Well, as I said earlier, my name is Walter. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm thankful that you would join us this morning. Uh, we are continuing our sermon series in 1 Peter. It's titled Sojourners. And as we look through this series, one of the key questions we're asking is, whom are we to be as followers of God? If indeed God has called and set us apart as individual believers, whom are we to be? What is God shaping us to be? And I think the song we just, sing, we just sang actually gives us a great insight into whom we're to be. You see, the key of this entire song that you, is that you can anchor yourselves in the promises of God. Everything He has said He will do, He will do. All the things He has promised will come to fruition. That we know that we can become whom God has called us to be because He has promised He is going to see us through. And as we go through this series titled Sojourners, that's what we're trying to grasp. Who is it that God is shaping us to be? Uh, today we've got a, uh, a bit of a challenging passage, if I may be honest. Um, one that uh, as I was preparing, I was actually a bit uncomfortable preparing for. Uh, you see in this passage, uh, Paul or Peter rather is speaking specifically to wives and husbands. And he continues with this bigger picture idea of who we're to be. And as we read this passage, I think you'll understand where some of my concern was as we're looking at this, because I want to, A, be faithful to the Scriptures, but B, speak in a way that is encouraging and edifying, one that, is, uh, one that draws us closer to the Lord. And so I'm grateful that I think God has shown some things to us, and we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. As we get started, though, I do want to make a note uh, that this is the time in our service where we typically take of our tithes and offerings. Uh, if you're here with us uh, as you're exiting, our deacons will be at the door, and you're welcome to drop your offering into the plate that they'll have. Uh, if you're watching online, or if you just prefer to give online, you can go to homesavenue.com forward slash give, and you're able to give online, take care of that as you feel led. Uh, with that in mind, though, I do want to begin by reading the Word of the Lord as we get started. And in our tradition here, uh, we do stand to read God's Word. So if you would, would you stand with us as we read uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Beginning of verse 1, it reads, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the women as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing." For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and let his lips, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. If you would, would you pray with me? Father, we're thankful for you today. 
in the midst of times of turmoil and concern, in the midst of difficulty and stress, you're the constant. You've not failed us and you never will start. Lord, we can trust and rest our hopes in you and you alone. So Father, today as we study the scriptures, would you show us this? Would you allow us to see the beauty and the power of the gospel on display? May we hear directly from the words of scripture who it is that you're calling us to be. May we look into the scriptures and may we see the truth that you're shaping us to to believe, to trust, to walk in. Father, we are thankful for the things that you're doing in our lives. And we know that though there's much turmoil in this world, that these things have not caught you by surprise and you're working these things together for your good and for the good of those that believe. So, Father, we're thankful for you. We're grateful for the work you're doing in our lives, and we pray that you bless us in this time. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. You guys may be seated. So, as we read the text, um, you may have begun to get a bit of an understanding of why I thought this passage was going to be a little bit challenging to preach. Uh, One of these things that I'm grateful for is that God is sovereign and He's in control, and we didn't come to this passage on accident. And so as we look at this passage, as we think through what God is doing, the the title of our message is, Who are God's people to be? Who are God's people to be? Now, as we look at this passage, it's true that Peter is looking specifically at women for certain instances of it, but there are some broad principles that we as followers of God can understand and live out through this. And so for today, I want you to understand that I'll be speaking very broadly to all of us, and there'll be a few moments where I'm speaking aside to our ladies to encourage you and to see you grow and thrive in the Lord. And so as we begin, as we look at verses 1 and 2, our first point is that God's people are to be willingly submissive. God's people are to be willingly submissive. Now, I want to start by talking very broadly to us, just as people of God. As we think through what does this mean to be willingly submissive, Peter's already begun to address this issue. If you look back at 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 13, he says, "...be subject to for the Lord's sake to every institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good." That's just a verse from the last chapter where Peter's addressing this reality that we as followers of God are to be willingly submissive to those in authority. Now, I know that in this season of life, particularly with the tension of the election we've just had, that this is a good reminder for us. Now, I say that I know this election was a bit tense, right? Because fully 50% of the country voted for President Trump. And another 50% of the country voted for President-elect Biden. And no matter where you land on the political divide, I know that some people in this room aren't happy. Others probably still aren't happy. And others may even yet be pleased by what God has allowed to happen. Yet, in this vein of thought, this is a reminder for us as individual believers... God has not called us to be happy with the choices of whom he's put in authority. God has called us to willingly submit to those in authority up to the point that they would command us to sin, and then we run away. Then we violently disagree. And I think a good word for us to remember is that just here in 1 Peter, 
Peter tells the early church who is being persecuted to submit in authority to those whom are persecuting them. That he tells them the Roman Empire who is persecuting you, who is killing Christians, who is driving you from your homes and your workplaces, submit to them. Submit to them to the point that they would lead you to sin and then you resist. You turn away. And I think in this season, it's a helpful reminder for us to recognize that though we may not be content with the choice of president-elect, God allowed this to happen for a purpose. God himself was not surprised by the fact that president-elect Joe Biden will be our next president in January. God was not surprised by this. You and I may have been, but God is not. And what I want to encourage you to do is that though you may not be a fan of President-elect Biden's policies or thoughts or anything to do with the Democratic Party, perhaps, what we are commanded to do is to, A, submit to the authority that God has allowed them to take hold of, and B, we are to pray earnestly on their behalf. Because this is a commitment that I'll give to you and the one that I'm going to hold you to. Just as we would pray fervently for President Trump and any perhaps Republican candidate, we will pray just as fervently for President-elect Biden and any Democratic candidate. Now you and I know that as we're praying, we're praying for God's grace to be showered upon them. I'll be very blunt with you. I'm praying for gospel conversion to occur if they're not believers. I'm praying for God's wisdom and guidance to be made known in their lives. I'm praying for those who love the Lord to come around them and to pray for them, to encourage them. The entire time, yes, I am praying ultimately for them to come to faith if they are not believers. But here's the reality is that we are commanded to submit to those in authority. We are commanded to willingly lay down our lives for those who are in place in authority. And I know that's a comfortable thing to say when the the representative you want is in charge, it's a lot more challenging to say when the representative you do not want in place is in charge. And so I know that perhaps I'm stepping on some toes and making you a bit uncomfortable, but I'll say this. If you're not willing to pray for President-elect Biden, you do not have any business calling yourself a faithful follower of Christ. That we are to pray for God's grace to be upon him, and his group of leaders. We are to pray for God to move in their hearts and minds. Our prayer is that, yes, perhaps God would change some things in their hearts and minds. Let's be very honest. It's the same thing we pray for President Trump. We pray that some things would be changed there. But I would encourage you to begin today praying for President-elect Biden. Begin praying that God would do a mighty work that only he could get the glory for in the lives of those around him and in his life. You see, that's a part of that willing submission to authority that we recognize that God is in control. God was in control yesterday. He was in control last Tuesday. And he'll be in control for all the days to come. And so we can willingly submit to those who are in authority because God is indeed in control. You see, we're to pattern our lives on the example of Christ who willingly submitted himself to the cross for our sake. Whom gave his life as an innocent man so that you and I, as sinful people, could be redeemed and brought into the family of God.
We simply follow the example of our Lord and Savior. Now, as we look at these verses, that's kind of a general principle we can understand for all believers. Peter's specifically addressing some things with our ladies here. As we look at verse 1, we see that he says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. You see, Peter takes that same principle and applies it directly to the lives of the women that he's writing to. You see, this idea is that women would willingly submit to their husband's authority or leadership in marriage. Now, I want to be very clear, and I'm going to be very blunt about this. Men, this is not an opt-out. This means that you don't get to be whatever you want to be. This doesn't mean that you get to live life recklessly and think that your wife is going to follow you. No, Ephesians chapter 5 and even verse 7 here means that you have a higher standard to live by. You're to be the type of man that your wife would willingly choose to submit to. That you're to be a man of such honesty and integrity, of such godliness, that she would willingly choose to follow you the rest of her days. Let's make no bones about it. This is not simply a call for women to submit. This is a call for men to man up. That was expected, right? The reality is that we are to be the type of men that our women would willingly say, yes, I will follow him for the rest of my days. That this means that we are held to a higher standard. And Peter makes that very clear here in verse 7. Let's also be clear about what this is not. This does not mean that if your husband says, if he's a non-believer, that you can't go to church, that you listen. You don't get to abandon your faith just because he thinks he's in charge. This does not mean that you have to listen if your husband tries to lead you in sin. This doesn't mean that if he's unfaithful or abusive that you have to stay because biblically there are principles that guide us. It does not mean that you have to remain quietly in home as a submissive homemaker baking bread and pretending that life is okay. You see, what it means, though, is that A, your husband would be the type of man you would willingly submit to, and B, even if he's not, by your good conduct and love for the Lord, he would repent of his sin and come to faith. You see, Peter is writing this to address a vulnerable group in the early church, specifically believing women who've married non-believers. You see, it, it happens today, but particularly in this time, these women have the faith, and their husbands are not believers. And so they are already in a vulnerable position in culture. You have to remember, the culture in Peter's time is a bit different than ours. There's a lot that's the same. But women were more vulnerable in that era. There were much more cultural pressures upon them. And for them to come to faith and to, to begin to follow a different faith than that of their husband, it put them in some difficult positions. And so Peter's writing to a group in the church that is vulnerable and saying, I need to give you some wisdom and guidance because there are some things you need to know about how God is going to walk with you and protect you if you are faithful to him. You see, Peter's concern is that they know, much like this persecuted church he's writing to, that Christ is Lord and he's not forgotten them in this difficult time. So you may ask, what's the purpose of this submission? What, what does this even look like in the life of a believer? Well, in this case, Peter's telling us that it's evangelistic in nature. 
You see, he asked these women to joyfully set a standard that even non-believers can look to and see Christ working. This idea of submission is a voluntary yielding for the good of those you labor with. You see, it is you willingly giving up your ability, your authority to lead so that your husband may take his place. We see in Ephesians chapter 5 that as Christ has ordered the marriage relationship, the husband is to lead, not because he's superior, not because he's better, because that's what Christ has expected of men. And let me be honest, ladies, I know many of you are great, strong, incredible women who are leaders. And I know what I'm saying can be a bit of a challenge sometimes. But what I do recognize is that if indeed your husband is living as Christ has called him to live, that process is a little bit easier, isn't it? If Kelly were in here, she'd say amen. That when I live as Christ has intended me to live, that relationship, that marriage relationship is much easier. That's a willing submission. Kelly's an incredible, strong woman. She doesn't need me. She chooses to walk with me and live life with me. And that's what Peter is pointing to here. This willful, joyful submission to your husband for the glory of the Lord, knowing that you're fully capable of doing these things, but you're choosing to let your husband lead. That is a gift. That is an honor. Peter intends that your husband in this situation, the non-believing husband, would literally be one to faith without a word. Yes, I know that evangelism is proclaiming the Word of God. Yes, I'm not changing anything there. But here Peter indicates their godly and loving behavior consistently through the years is going to potentially yield in persuading their husbands in the truth of the gospel. I think the beautiful truth about that is, though, if you're truly living a Christ-centered life, the people around you are hearing the gospel. They're seeing you study scriptures. They're hearing you proclaim it. Those things are happening. But what Peter is telling us here is that this Christ-centered living makes a difference. You see, Peter believes that a long demonstration of the power of Christ to lead your life, combined with hearing the Word of God over time, can change anyone's heart. And he's right. We're not just talking about marriage here. We're talking about ministry. This is what ministry is, a long obedience in the same direction. That we consistently live as Christ has called us to live, and along the way we're proclaiming the Word of God to those around us. And what does that do? That bears fruit. That sees people repent of their sins and turn towards Jesus and follow Him the rest of their days. That sees lives changed. That sees families changed because of the power of the gospel. You see, Peter believes that the gospel is more powerful than any man, any name, anything else on this earth. He believes that the gospel has power to save. He believes that gospel can change lives of anyone it encounters. And as he's speaking specifically to women here, he is saying, live a godly life, follow the Lord faithfully, and those around you will trust in him one day. He's saying, live to the standard that I've called you. Live in humble obedience and submission to your husband, because I am going to move in their lives through your display of the gospel and your proclamation of the word. And so as Peter's writing this, he's giving this encouragement 
to these women in these situations. This encouragement to you, ladies, who are in this situation. Perhaps you are in a difficult relationship. Perhaps you are in a situation where your husband is not a believer. Take heart. God is not finished yet. The gospel can change lives. God is not done with you or your family. So take heart that God has not abandoned you, that God is still working in your midst. See lives changed. Now Peter doesn't end there. He continues to address some other principles that we have to understand. You see, our second point is that God's people are to be internally concerned. Now, as we think just kind of general principles here, we live in a culture that prides itself on external adornment, right? This culture we live in is about having the nicest car, the flashiest phone, the best clothing, having the best haircut, looking the nicest, right? Every ad we see is concerned about how we should look, how we should dress, how we should sound, etc., right? The entire culture is built upon putting this picture-perfect idol in front of you and saying, if you have this, you will have satisfaction. It's a world obsessed with flash and no substance. You see, the reality of this situation is that what the world would tell us is that need to be satisfied by having this idol, this thing, and it's going to make us happy. Yet in every instance, what does it lead us with? It leaves us with wanting more and more. We've got the nicest car, but that's a year old now. We need a new one. We have the best phone, but six months later, there's a new one coming out. We have the best clothes right now, but in three weeks, there's something different we need to be wearing to be culturally appropriate. The reality is that if you chase this dream, you're going to continue to need more and more and more. And you'll never be satisfied. Now, I'm not saying that you can't dress nicely or care about how you look. It, it's true that there's room for a measure of personal respect, right? You can, you can dress well. You can care about how you look to a certain degree. Yet the truth of what Peter is getting to here is that eventually our looks will fade. Our clothes will go out of style. We will not have the nicest, newest phone or car or whatever accessory you think is great. Yet, the Lord will endure forever. You see, Isaiah actually wrote this in Isaiah 48. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You see, in this life, in this culture we live in that demands that you have to have the best, nicest thing in order to be relevant, this is a countercultural idea of you saying, I will be content with the Lord and the Lord alone. Even as we proclaim that, some of you think I'm crazy. It's fair. But the truth of it is, is that the one anchor, the one constant we have is the Lord, and He Himself will bring us joy and satisfaction, not these things that we chase. Now, what does that have to do with these verses 3 and 4? As we look at them, let's look at verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart 
with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. In this same way, as we're thinking about what does it mean to be beautiful? What does it mean to be attractive? Peter needed to provide the same reminder to the early church. You see, in in this culture that Peter is writing to, much like ours, women in particular are under enormous pressure to, to conform to cultural standards of beauty. The, the world tells us, even in this day, even in Peter's time, there's a certain way you must look and dress, certain makeup you may, may wear to be considered beautiful. And Peter's concern here is one of emphasis for us. Let's be clear that he's not saying you can't wear jewelry or you can't wear nice clothes. He's not concerned about those things. Rather, he's concerned about the emphasis you place on these things. He's saying that you and I need to remember what is important. You and I need to remember what is important. Now, this is incredibly countercultural today. Yet, I think there's a truth here that we can recognize. As you hear this, you might say, does Paul... What does he think about women? Is he, is he really concerned about the ladies that he's speaking to? And I would submit to you that, that, that Peter here, that he thinks more highly of women than the, very, the culture we live in today. I think that he places women in a position of honor where our culture views them as simply creatures or vessels. Our culture thinks less of women than what Peter and the Bible think of women. And I think that's very true that, that Peter wants women to be freed from society's obscene obsession with beauty and to rest in the true beauty that the Lord has provided you. That Peter wants us to be freed from the standard of living up to whatever it is society has said and rather conform to the standard of beauty that the Bible has given us. You see, Peter would suggest to us that this hidden or inner person is what we're to be concerned about. You see, he's not talking about external ornaments. He's talking about the inward heart. He's saying that true beauty is found on the inside. And I think the the nature of this is that this is true. We've all met these people who meet the world's standard of beauty, and they're horrible people. And we've all met these people who do not conform to that standard, And they're incredible people who love the Lord. You see, we're to live in a way that brings honor to God. And Peter would suggest that through this gentle and quiet spirit that he's encouraging us, particularly our ladies towards, and this is where true beauty is found. Now, I've said that men don't get an opt-out today. I'm going to step on your toes too, so I need you to know that. Um, Just as a note to men, I'm going to call each one of us out. Is this the type of woman that we're teaching our sons to look for in a wife? Are we saying that you need to look for a woman who meets the world's standard of beauty? Or are you saying the standard that you need to look for is a woman who is beautiful on the inside first? I have a friend who suggests that the the Holy Spirit changes things inside and out. And it's true. That I think when you see a a person whom is in love with the Lord and has the gentleness, kindness that the Lord has given them, there's something compelling about that person. 
And I would submit to you that as men, we need to be teaching our sons to look for true beauty, not for external beauty. I would even suggest, is this what we most appreciate and honor in our wives before our children and friends and family? Is this what we put on display, not just their external looks, but their true beauty, their heart, their character, their kindness? Here's the reality of this. Uh, when, when I began dating Kelly, you know, I was at Charleston Southern, and let's be very honest with one another, at a college campus there are a lot of pretty ladies. The thing that had Kelly standing apart from the rest of the people that I could have potentially pursued a relationship with was that internal character. That there was a gentleness, a kindness. There was an internal character that led me to go, yeah, I could marry any of these ladies potentially, but this is the one that I think God's called me to. This is the woman who will encourage me and strengthen me as a man. This is the woman who will be an incredible mother to our children. This is the woman that I want to grow old with, knowing that those days will be even sweeter because of the spirit that she has. Gentlemen, if this is not the standard that we're calling our sons to, we are a part of the problem. That we must teach our sons that this is whom you're to look for. We must teach our daughters that yes, you can care about the external looks, but what truly matters is the heart. What truly matters is your character. What truly matters is who you are in Christ. I would submit to you if we would spend our time teaching our children this and complaining less about what's found in schools or anywhere else that we may have already changed the world. I would submit to you that if we really are concerned about the next generation, perhaps these are the things we should be extolling before them. Not vote for this candidate, do this, do that, go to college, get a job. Perhaps we should be more concerned about their character and who they are in Christ than the things that they're doing. And so as Peter is addressing these things, he's saying that we're to be internally concerned. We're to concern ourselves with what's going on in the heart, not on the outside. Now, these, these gospel truths are built on really what I think is this next principle, is that God's people are to trust God's promises. God's people are to trust God's promises. Look with me at verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You are her children, and if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the women as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. You see, Peter gives us this illustration of Sarah for us to see. You know, as Peter was writing this, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is speaking to him, and he's telling him what to write in some essence. And as Peter's wrestling with, how, what woman of the Scriptures that I can find that would best illustrate this, best show this? There are probably many women that would come to mind, right? You can think of many throughout the ages of Scripture that you would write about. And what Pete, the one that Peter chose to write about was Sarah. 
And to be very honest, I'm grateful that Peter was led by the Spirit to choose Sarah because I think she's the perfect example of the type of woman we are calling our ladies to be, that we're encouraging them to be. You see, Sarah is not perhaps this wallflower type of woman that you're picturing. She wasn't a weak person. Sarah had a little bit of an attitude on her. She told Abraham and put him in his place several times. We've got it in Scripture. Isn't that the most embarrassing thing when your wife corrects you? Yet God recorded that in Scripture for all generations to see. Many times I can paraphrase what Sarah told you to Abraham. You're an idiot. Many, many times. We see that she wasn't this weak-willed person. She was willing to stand for herself and say, we're going to do this, honey, and it's going to be okay. That she had a sense of humor, right? When God came to Abraham and said, you and Sarah are going to have a son, Abraham's in the tent giggling going, he's old and I'm older. Do you really think this is going to work? And yet in that moment, it's that very moment that Peter is pointing back to that would show us that she is indeed the type of woman as an illustration and example that we're calling women to be. You see, in that very passage in Genesis 18, God has visited Abraham and he's telling him this promise. He's telling him that I've promised you that your descendants will number greater than the stars, that you look up and you can't even count the number of stars. You'll have even more descendants than this. And Abraham here, after several years of hearing this promise, simply looks at God and goes, but I'm old. We don't precisely know how old Abraham was, but it was old. It can be translated in Hebrew as older than dirt. He was old. And Sarah was older. And as God says this promise, we see in that passage that Sarah standing in the tent laughing. She's laughing because she doubts God can do this. She's laughing because she says, he's older than dirt, and I'm older than him, so I'm older than dirt. How is this going to happen? And God says to Abraham, this will be what I've promised. What I've promised will come true. What I've promised will be fulfilled. And Sarah, trust in the Lord and trust in Abraham. You see, Sarah is the picture of the promise that God has provided for us. You see, this promise here is that those who entrust themselves to God will find that he keeps his word to them. We know as we look through Genesis that God did and keep his promise to Sarah and to Abraham. Sarah bore a son. And through her son, Abraham's descendants were innumerable. Because one of his descendants is us. We are a part of that spiritual family that God was pointing to. You and I have been grafted into this tree. We are a part of Abraham's lineage. When God promised that your descendants will number greater than the stars, he was pointing to you and I. He was pointing to generations to come of those who would trust in the Lord. And so, yes, we can call Sarah, in some respect, a great, 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 great grandmother, if you want. But just as God kept his promise to Sarah, he will keep his promises to you and I. This is our anchor in this time. 
We can remember 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. You see, they read, Blessed be the God of our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has called us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You see, this is the promise that Peter and that God are reminding us of. That we have been born again through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Because He raised from the dead, having power over life and death, we too as believers will be raised from the dead because He has power over life and death. And that our anchor in this life, our hope, our assurance is found in the fact that if indeed God is who He says He is and He has made this promise, then it will be fulfilled. And that one day when we breathe our final breath on this earth, we'll cross over into heaven and spend eternity with the Lord. You see, this is the anchor. This is the promise that everything is anchored on. And Peter is saying that Sarah anchored herself. She remembered this promise. You see, we can trust God to keep His word. This is what Peter has been reminding you and I of through this entire book. He's trying to get us to see that this present life is difficult, but it pales in comparison to the glory of the heavens that await us. You see, it can perhaps best be summed up with, entrust yourself to God and God will go with you. Entrust yourself to God and God will go with you. Now, I've said multiple times that Peter's not just going to leave the men alone. He's got some words for us here in verse 7 that we've seen. And he gives us this one verse that's full of wisdom as we're thinking through what does it look like to be a godly man. Now he begins with this idea that men are to be a one-woman man. You know, when he says that husbands live with your wives in an understanding way, He's pointing back to this idea of the one flesh, the Hebrew language of becoming one. That you are to be a one woman type of man. What does that mean? That means that there's no straying, no looking, no cheating. That your wife has full measure to beat you with a frying pan if she catches you looking at someone. That what Peter is calling us to is the type of holiness and standard that says our measure of beauty is that of our wife and no other. Our standard is our wife, and no one else comes close. That he is telling us that we are to be concerned about our wives and our wives alone when it comes to the billions of people on this earth. Know this, know this truth. Your wife, and I'm speaking to you gentlemen, your wife deserves nothing less than your most elevated and intimate care, concern, Love, honor, and respect. Nothing less than that. Now why is this important? Why is treating her, loving her in this way so important? Well, not only is this just a picture of marriage that Paul provides in Ephesians chapter 5, but Peter says there are two other reasons that this is important. Why you should live in this way, men. First and foremost, our wives are fellow heirs with Christ. That if indeed we are married as equally yoked, that is, our wives and ourselves are believers, they are a part of the family of God. 
that they are the bride of Christ just like us. Therefore, they are of eternal value and priceless in the sight of God. As we wrestle with this idea of of caring for one another, we would not want to even think of mistreating a fellow co-heir of Christ in the church. Yet we will do so so willingly with a fellow co-heir that we're married to. You see, Peter is concerned about that, that willingness to not follow every ounce of Scripture to treat them well. But a second concern, and he says that this isn't just a concern for me, this is a concern from God. You see, he says that our prayers will be hindered if we don't carefully steward our marriage. He literally says, so that your prayers not be hindered. He's saying, if you indeed live well, love your wife well, your prayers will not be hindered. Why is this true? What reminds us of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 13 through 11. You can go look at that on your own. But let me summarize that for for you, just for reference. What that passage says is that in times of us needing conviction and guidance from the Lord, sometimes God will interfere in our lives and not answer our prayers. He will, in fact, interrupt our prayer life and make it a challenge, an impossibility to pray until we get right with Him. His concern is not that we are praying. His concern is that we are praying with a right heart. And so the key to this is that God is so concerned with how we love our wives that He'll interrupt our relationship with Him to show us our errors. And so perhaps if you're spending your days and you're struggling to grow in your faith, perhaps an answer is to look at how you're loving your co-heir with Christ. Ladies, as you hear that, I hope you hear the love and affection that God the Father has for you. That He would willingly disrupt your husband's prayer life so that He would repent of His sin towards you. So that He would lead you and love you in a way that is full of the love, affection, and tenderness that Christ intends His bride to have. I want you to know that that shows that you are valued and loved in the sight of God. Men, that shows that you are loved and valued in the sight of God because He wants you so eagerly to get this right that He's willing to mess up your prayer life so that you would say something's wrong. Let's look at it. It's here. I haven't done this well. That this is a gift from the Lord. That's actually what that Hebrews passage tells us. Hebrews 12, verses 3 through 11. That God in His discipline is showing us mercy because He's telling us, something's wrong, you moron, pay attention. And God in His kindness is redirecting us from our sin to repentance. Now Peter gives us a last encouragement, if you will. In all this, he's been showing us how we're to live. He's showing us how we're to act and function as God's people. And he leaves us this last thought, verses 9 through 12, that God's people are called to bless. God's people are called to bless. Look at verse, beginning of verse 8 with us. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. 
Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. Let's just pause right there. I'm going to make them mad because that wasn't what I had on the notes. Peter's now speaking to all believers again. He's saying, look, all of you who are followers of Christ, pay attention here. That we're united by the things of Christ. We're to be united by the things of Christ. He tells us that we're to have unity of mind. Now, this doesn't mean that we're all to act the same or think the same. What this does mean is that we are united in some key shared gospel truths. That we have the same passion for the gospel. That we are devoted to Christ and His glory. This is why we have individual faith families. This is why we worship here and Portside worships there and Cooper River worships there. Because we are committed to this faith family. We have a unity in mind because we believe what God is calling us to do here at Holmes Avenue. And so we're unified together in this. He also references these idea, this idea of sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. You see, those paint the picture of a compassionate person. Those paint the picture of a kind and gentle person. You see, we're to be moved by the brokenness of this world. We're to be moved by people in difficult situations. We're to be moved and grieved by sin in the li- our lives and the lives of others. We're to be tender-hearted and care for those who are broken and tired. You see, we desire God's will to be done in this world, and that is that the gospel will be proclaimed to every corner so that in that moment, His will is fulfilled, the world has been saturated with the gospel, and Christ's return can come. This also paints the picture, and this is perhaps a good reminder for us and in marriage, that we're to think more of others than ourselves. That we're not to live our lives in a self-centered, me-centered, me-focused way, but rather we're to create margin in our lives so that we can love and care for those around us. I know each of us have done this. I'm I'm particularly guilty of this because I tend to fill my schedule, my life with things. But have you just felt like you're too busy to do the things that God is calling you to do right now? I'm not the only one. You get so much in your plate and you're saying, I don't have room to do this. And that's not the life we're intended to live. God's intending for us to live with some margin so that we can do ministry, so we can love those in the moments of messiness and unplanned interruption, right? I get phone calls all the time from y'all, and I'm grateful for it, but it comes all the time, at various times. And you know what that means? That means I need to create space for you who need me. That to be interrupted by a church member is a gift, not a discouragement. And I want you to know that, that, that when your name comes up on my call RD, I'm not going, oh gosh, they're calling again. I'm going, I get to talk to them. Let's be honest, it's more inconvenient sometimes than others, but it is a gift to be interrupted, to be able to do that ministry of encouraging you, of counseling you, of walking with you. Now, that's just what we find in verse 8, right? Verse 9 has a completely different contrast. It says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. 
You see, it paints the picture that we're to pursue non-retaliation. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't defend ourselves or protect our families. That's not what Peter is saying here. But what he's pointing back to is this idea that you're to turn the other cheek in terms of verbal interactions. That if someone's going to criticize you, then guess what? They're going to criticize you whether you look them in the face or not. If they're going to condemn you for your faith, they're going to condemn you whether you're there or not. What do you gain by blasting back at them? Are you right? Perhaps you'll be factually right, but in the Lord's eyes, you have stepped into a place of wrongness. What this means is that we don't seek action against those who hate us or condemn us for our faith. You see, we are purely defensive in our actions because our weapon, our offense, is a holy God and His gospel. That we're encountered with this opposition, we don't fire back and say, you think I'm this? Well, you're this, that, and that. We rather say, God is good and He is gracious. We say the Lord will have His vengeance. And vengeance is not mine, it is indeed the Lord's. That we serve a holy God who is far more concerned about justice and righteousness than you and I will ever be. This doesn't mean we don't call out wrong actions when it's necessary. We will sit here and we will condemn those things, most certainly. We will call people to a better standard of life, absolutely. But if you want to sit here and to condemn me as an individual, that's your prerogative. And the Lord will have vengeance on you. Do you know how I know this? Because he tells us here in verses 10 through 12. He, he tells us literally, beginning in verse 10, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. That It perhaps tells us the capacity to love life and see good days is dependent upon one's commitment to keep your mouth shut and proclaim only the good things that will bring honor and glory to God. And ain't that a hard one to do? The reality is that the consequences of this, as we look at verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face, is against, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You see, it's not enough just to not condemn verbally. It is not enough just to speak, not speak out verbally when you're sinned against. Concrete action is required. We must turn away from evil. That requires us to do something. We must seek and pursue peace. There's not passive words, seek or pursue. That means we have to do something. We have to go after peace. We have to pursue it. We have to seek to find it. And the scriptures here tell us, and he's just paraphrasing Psalm 34, if you want to go look at the original, is that God's eyes are attentive to the needs of the righteous. Those who resist the temptation to resort to verbal revenge and evil actions. God looks upon you favorably. Yet those who do evil by using their tongues and their actions to exact vengeance will find that the Lord has turned His face against them. You see, just like in verse 7, answered prayer, this relationship we have with God, is tied to godly obedience and humble trust in the sufficiency of God's goodness. 
And here is the fundamental truth of these verses. That we have no hope in this life of doing what is asked of us to keep our tongue from evil and our lips from speaking deceit if it is not for the goodness of God in our lives. That if you're here today and you're hearing this and you're thinking, yes and amen, that is good. It is only possible if indeed you are found as a child of God. Because left to our own sinful desires and actions, we will certainly say some evil things. We will seek verbal revenge. We will fight against evil actions. And the reality of it is that left to our own fleshly desires, you and I will give in to sin and temptation every single time. But... The free grace of God that has been showered upon you and I gives us the ability to resist sin and temptation. That it gives us the ability to stand firm on the word of God and to hold tight to his promises, trusting that he is indeed whom he has said he is. And so the fundamental truth that we are addressed with today is that if indeed you say, I want to live in this way, I want to rest on God's promises. It first begins with accepting this promise, this free gift of God, that you are a sinner, that you and I have fallen short of the glory of God, but God in His goodness and mercy sent Jesus Christ into this world, that He made Him who knew no sin to take our place upon the cross, that He made Him who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, God began this ministry of reconciliation so that first we would be made right with Him and then we could be made right with others. And so today if you're saying, I want to be made right with others, it begins with first being made right with the Lord. And that begins with that free and humble admission of guilt and sin. Proclaiming to the Lord on high, I have sinned and fallen short of the standard you have set, Lord. Forgive me. Change my heart. Change my mind. Let me follow you for the rest of my days. That if that's you, that that's your only response today. And that I assure you, if you will humble yourself and rest upon this core promise of God, that you can rest and anchor yourselves on the remaining promises. And so today, as our band comes back up, you and I have an opportunity to humbly repent before the Lord. You and I have an opportunity to confess our sin and shame and to receive forgiveness from the Lord. And so as our band comes up, I'm going to lead us in a time of corporate prayer. As we begin, it'll be a time of silence for you and I individually to go to the Lord, to pray and to ask for His forgiveness. And then as we have that time of quiet prayer, I will then conclude, I'll I'll speak out loud and pray for us as we go into this final time of worship today. During this last song, if if God is moving in your life, if He's doing something in your life you want to talk about, if you're watching online, you can go to Holmes Avenue forward slash contact. If you're here, I want to speak to you. I'll be right up here during the last song. I'll be out in the back as you guys are exiting out. I want to hear what God's doing in your lives. I want to hear what He's telling you. And I want to celebrate with you as He's moving and changing things in your life. So if I may, we're going to go to the Lord in prayer in a moment of silent prayer. And then I'll close us and we'll worship together. 
Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we are thankful for you. We're thankful of the promises, of the assurances you've given us. That if indeed we trust in you, there's forgiveness for our sins. That if indeed we trust in you, we are brought into the kingdom, into the family of God. That if indeed we trust in you, that we have a holiness, an inheritance that is set aside for us that is imperishable and unfading, the guarantee that we'll be united with you in the next life. Father, I pray for every man, woman, and child who's listening. May you move in our hearts and minds. May you make us receptive to the power of the gospel. May we trust in Christ as our Savior, repenting of our sins and crying out to you, thank you, Father. In this time of worship, in this last song, may we truly sing these words, it is well, with confidence and assurance that indeed it is well. That we can only sing these words with this confidence and assurance if we trust in you. Because if we have you, Lord, then indeed it is well. So Father, would you see fit to shower us with your grace and mercy? Would you let us see, hear, and respond to the goodness of your name? And may we sing this last song with confidence that indeed it is well because we have you, Lord. Father, we're grateful for you. We're thankful for the things that you're doing in our lives even now. And we pray that you bless us today. We pray these things in your name. Amen.